Our scripture reading this morning is Romans chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, and 13 to 24. You therefore have no excuse, you pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? For it is not those who fear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature these things, nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you will call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiments of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that people should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor abhor idols, do you rob tempers? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking law? That is written, God's name is blasphemed, blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is the word of the Lord. Just before I said this, I looked at Bob Trainer, which makes this appropriate. Next Sunday is the Super Bowl. It's at 3.30, right? Uh, so church will be well over by then. Um, what's that? Pre-game, pre-game is already on. <laughs> um, football is in the United States arguably more of a religion than most religions right now. It's not just, I mean, hockey can be the same way in Canada, but religious devotion, they have temples, they have, uh, you know, objects that you need to to bring to the place of worship. It's the whole, whole deal. Uh, 
they have fanatics, just like religious fanatics. Um, and I want you to imagine something, and if you're not into football, what's wrong with you? Not, uh, anyway. <laughs> One of the interesting things, now I'm just going to give you cultural comments before I get to the sermon. There's a big study done in the United States recently on uh, football fans who have young kids. And there's a huge amount, uh, number of football fans committed to the NFL, you know, uh, who, who say they won't let their kids play football. It's something that uh, is on the NFL's radar screen and other people's radar screen because the, some of the violence or, or injuries in the sport. And so it's interesting, something that's so gigantic uh, faces some, some challenges as well. Anyway, that wasn't in my notes. It's just a curious thought. Here's what I want you to imagine. You've been invited to a Super Bowl party, and some of you have to, like, would have to imagine even that. Why would I go to a Super Bowl party? And you don't really care about football or know anything about it. Can you imagine that? And you come in. Now, it's Seattle, the Seattle, what's the name of them? The Seahawks playing the New England Patriots next week. And, uh, and imagine that you go in and you're invited by someone in this room who happens to be a real huge fan of the Seattle Seahawks to go see the football game at their place, and there's a bunch of people there. You get there a little bit late, which means, you know, maybe only three hours before the game starts, and you don't know that it's a bunch of Seattle super fans there. That's how ignorant you are of the game. And you make the mistake, though you don't really care, of announcing that you're cheering for the New England Patriots. And, and you're judged now in two ways. The first way is you're cheering for the wrong team. The second way is they start to discern, because real fans can tell whether you're a real fan or not, they discern that you don't even really care, which is even worse, right? So I want you to hold that. I'm going to Ian Gilmartin's to watch, and uh, I have declared my allegiance for the Seahawks, though i got to admit at times it wavers. Sorry, Ian. Um, and Bob. Uh, so from football to the Bible, you, oh, do we have these here? It's acted up. See where, see where our uh, computer guy is here this morning? Yeah. So uh, my notes on the screen are amazing, but you'll have to miss them. Uh, so from the football to the Bible, you may not know, well, you kind of do now who the New England Patriots are, or you may know. And the interesting thing is there's, well, I don't know, but in some parts of, of North America, there would be more people who know who the New England Patriots are than people who know who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are not a sports team, though that would be a curious name, the Vancouver Pharisees. The Pharisees in Scripture are a group of religious leaders and who find their presence mostly in the four Gospels, so they're around at the time of Jesus. And they fancy, fancy themselves the keepers of the Jewish faith. Jesus is Jewish, by the way, as many of you would know. And they are around at a time of occupation. They are, the land is occupied by a foreign power, and the Pharisees hate that foreign power. Uh, but what they turn their vitriol to more are people in their own faith who they find are not acceptable or not living up to the standards of their faith or whatever it might be. They are respected. They are religiously devout, most of them. And Jesus, as an observant Jew, though not observant to their liking, they are, always often, they are often upset at Jesus. And Jesus is, in our understanding, but not the Pharisees' understanding, at least not most of them, uh, he is, in our understanding, the promised Messiah of the Jewish faith. What happens is that his main opponents become the Pharisees. If you read the Gospels, you will see that over and over again, Jesus' battle 
is uh, primarily with them. Now, we would say, of course, Jesus' battle is with sin, the spiritual battle. But if you were just reading the Gospels on kind of a surface, uh, in a surface way, you would, you would line them up as Jesus here and the Pharisees are the ones that are always trying to take him down. And he ha- he's um, very sharp and wise and uh, winds up upsetting them at times with sarcasm, at times putting their own questions back on their heads. And in many ways, their views and Jesus' views could not be any different, though they come from the same faith. All of this this morning, because I want to mention to you an interesting study. And I want to put ourselves in the midst of this, because it's true that many of us might do the same thing that is demonstrated in this study. It took place in 2010, and a group of questions was presented to a number of Christians in evangelical churches in the United States. The questions contained uh, various perspectives and views on the world, views on everything from the poor to moral issues, spiritual issues, religious issues. And I don't know how many questions there were. Let's say there were 80, and you don't really know what you're being asked, and you try to wonder what, uh, what the point of it is. And, of course, those running the study didn't say. What the study had lined up, actually, was those who'd written the study took the views of the Pharisees and their idea of the world, morality, religion, and spirituality and asked a bunch of contemporary questions that would support the Pharisees' perspective. They did the same with the views of Jesus Christ as presented in the Gospels, and so they had a number of questions, and they asked evangelical Christians, where do you express agreement? The interesting thing was that far and away, Christians identified as correct the views of the Pharisees and as incorrect the views of Jesus Christ. That's interesting, isn't it? They were cheering for the wrong team. In other words, in Christian religious circles, we're often given up, and I think we, we would, some of us would, would struggle with the same thing. We are off because they look good. The Pharisees are upholding what's called the religious law. And even in a place like this, you would have people who, like, it looks like everything's good. They're a person who's doing all the right stuff. And yet, they are often Jesus' opponent. In Christian religious circles, we are often given to line up behind the opponents of Jesus Christ, thinking that the living of Christian faith means upholding, but we wouldn't call it this ever, pharisaical concepts and ideas in ways of relating to the rules and so forth in our faith. On another note, I don't, it wasn't the same study, but another curious note while we're kind of pointing out some of the cracks in evangelical Christian gatherings, uh, another study was done more recently than this, I think, than 2010. And uh, just on Bible knowledge, we could do the same here. We could do it right here this morning, do on Bible. I mean, it would be the way to make people feel terrible, except for a few people, right? Uh, On Bible knowledge. And what came out was that uh, evangelical Christians had, like, it was almost unnoticeable. They had slightly more biblical knowledge than those who who identified as atheists. And what the study presented was that pretty much that little bit extra could be explained by they just happen to show up to church once in a while and hear somebody like this saying something about the Bible. And so they've heard words like Jonah and and names and whatever else. Why do I tell you all this? It's not to shake my finger at you, though. I do wish that you would grow and all of us would grow in correspondence to Jesus Christ and not other religious figures. And I do strongly wish that you would each read your Bible more, but not religiously, 
as you'll see in a few minutes. I tell you this because we've entered this important territory in the proclamation of the Christian gospel. We are in the preliminary section of how the gospel will be presented in the book of Romans. The gospel in the first half of chapter 1 is introduced, and we are told that two worlds come together in Jesus Christ, both in in the text and in the commentary on the text. The world of uh, humanity and time and the world of divinity and eternity come together in Jesus Christ. In the second half of chapter 1 and in all of chapter 2, the need for the gospel is revealed. The gospel is the good news that we can be in relationship with the eternal God. But the the first half of chapter 1, which we looked at last week, and all of chapter 2, basically say everybody needs the gospel, including religious people, which we get to today. For the non-religious, the end of the second half of chapter 1, God's wrath is revealed. And we told you that you could be distracted by those words, God's wrath, as if you have a, a cinematic kind of viewpoint that there's, you know, the wrath of some, some strong figure in whether it be Lord of the Rings or um, Star Trek or something that, that eventually that person's had enough or that power's had enough and they're going to let everybody have it. That's the wrong understanding of wrath. Wrath is presented in chapter 1 as this progression as people glorify anything else above God. They turn away from God. Our hearts are darkened. Our understanding becomes senseless. We begin to to worship created things. And, of course, the the peak of the wrath of God is that that God allows us or God hands us over to these things which then control us. It is a terrible judgment, but it's not some abusive parent figure in in the God position. So that's for non-religious people basically saying, I mean, in, in most cases, though, these days, religious people can be given to glorify, you know, sensuality and comfort and leisure. I was thinking of this. There are people in North Vancouver. I mean, we live in a fairly affluent part of the world. Um, just the fact that you live here means you're in, in, in the high echelons in this world of, of um, wealth and such. And, and in, in a place like this, like other places in the world like this, sometimes leisure itself can become a bit of a burden. I mean, there are people here in our midst, I don't know if you've ever felt this, but I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, I'm just thinking in a a room with this many people, who leisure, vacation, whatever it is, becomes such a responsibility that you feel terrible if you didn't achieve that leisure. Uh, This is the kind of thing that is being talked about in chapter 1, that everything takes over. We even mentioned that religion and family can become glorified uh, above God. So that, in a sense, is saying, for those who don't want to pay attention to God, here's how the wrath of God is revealed. But then Paul makes this brilliant turn in chapter 2. Because you know what religious people do when they're, when they're guided by religion? Some of you have felt this, and some of you have felt others doing this to you. But all of us, I think, just about all of us in this room have done this. It might not be over the Christian faith, right? It might be over recycling, you know, or, or whatever it is that matters greatly, but where you kind of shake your head at somebody else who just doesn't get it. And religious people can do that to non-religious people. And so in this text that is there, where after chapter 1, religious people basically could be thinking, okay, those people sure are going to get theirs. And then this brilliant turn in chapter 2. You see it in your text if you've got your booklets? Right at the beginning of the text. You, therefore... Oh, it's there. Thank you. And so I might have to do this a bit. 
I like to see you missed that slide. It says at a Super Bowl party, Jesus and the Pharisees. And I didn't mean it that way, but that's interesting to consider. Anyway. This brilliant turn, therefore you who are without, you are without excuse. Or in some texts it will actually say, but, but as for you, you who are now kind of, you know, smacking your fingers in judgment against all these other people, let me tell you about the wrath of God being revealed towards you. It's a wonderful turn. You have no excuse because you can see the wrath of God revealed. And if you're religious, you still don't have an excuse because, and here's what the text says, if you judge other people, you wind up condemning yourself. In Australian open parlance, that is game, set, and match. Religion doesn't quite do it either. My personal reflection on this text, and for those who know me, they may think this is true. Sometimes I say things about myself and people say, that's not true at all, Todd, but I think this one is. I love this text because although I'm a pastor, I have never wanted to be religious. Not speaking against religion. Some of you love religion and, and like being religious, and that's it's just not my personal kind of makeup. And though I accept and feel this probably more than you do, I accept that I'm wrong on many things, or maybe most things. Here in this text is good news, great news for people like me. You like the words, in Christ we have been made new. We've been made to be a new creation, right? That beautiful. The old is gone, the new has come, and we are fully alive. I am so glad that it does not mean that God has made a new religious creation. God and the Holy Spirit are not about God as the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not about creating religious people. Amen, amen, amen. Now, Most of the world outside of these walls or churches like this don't know this truth. God's work in Christian faith is not to create religious people. But my friends who don't go to church, or I'm standing on the sideline of a soccer game, which is in itself a conversion for me, and I'm with Aiden's friends who many are non-religious, they think, and this is not... you know, judging them in any way. They assume that I'm a religious person. That's just how they think of it. Because, well, I'm a pastor, I go to church. And you get the same thing from some of your friends. But this is the truth of Scripture. God is not about creating religious people. I'm saying this here because at the beginning of this text, here is the turn. God's wrath is revealed against the unrighteousness of non-religion. Chapter 1. Like sensuality, serving our appetites. But here, God's wrath is revealed against the unrighteousness of religion. I would want you to read the chapter and read the chapter and read the chapter so that you can allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. But I need to introduce some concepts here, some biblical concepts, and then you'll have slightly more Bible knowledge than someone who never reads the Bible. Not unlike today, people back in this time carried, and even in the Roman church that Paul is writing to, carried confusion, like you do, like I can, over religion and rules and faith and salvation. So they did what, often, many of them did what people think they're supposed to do to please some spiritual authority, and that is follow the rules. And, and make, try to make other people follow the rules. 
You can think of this in a church. If you've raised children who are part of a church, you'll see it in that regard as well. Because if the kids line up and do everything according to the rules, they will be thought of as kind of a better or whatever it is. we're, We're in this kind of confusion about what the what the rules are for this is all around one word in the text and that word is law but law is not as we think of law often kind of a justice system law is religious law what it means to please god or even as we would understand god's law the law was given at mount sinai did you hear that song i asked you not to sing he has hushed the law's loud thunder he has quenched mount sinai's flame One of the reasons you need to know the Bible is you'll sing better songs. I mean, that that hymn is not about what you feel about God, which is okay, but it's a little sickening if that's all you sing over and over again. Here's what I feel about you, God. Oh, I feel about this. It's about you, God. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. You're not really mentioned in the song that much. The law was given at Mount Sinai. You weren't there, but you might remember. You shall have no other gods before me. Do not murder. Do not lie. Do not envy. The law, Ten Commandments, right? And much more. Hundreds of regulations. And what happens is this. The law comes from God. I keep looking at that screen. The law comes from God for the formation of a people. This is the way you live. You won't live... Uh, just according to your appetites, but here's what God expects of you, and the people will be formed around and in their understanding by this law. People begin to relate to the law in a few different ways. I've highlighted a couple for you. And I put there, religious people see themselves as, uh, it should have a proviso there, religious people can see themselves as. I'm not, I'm not by the way, speaking against religion. Religion is a, is a great thing when used properly, but it's just a human creation. And by the way, if you go to any church, Catholic church, Anglican church, Brethren church, keeping that in your mind will help you. This is just a human creation in order to help us to try to understand God and to try to, you know, seek this and grow in this faith. So I'm not against religion. And so I would add there, religious people can relate to the law in a few different ways. A couple mentioned here. Number one. Phone's buzzing. Number one. We have been given the law and told to keep it so people can see themselves as law keepers. This is verses 1 to 16 of chapter 2. We keep it. We're good people who don't do bad things. And our job is to get other people to keep the law and we'll go to great lengths to do this. The second group of people that will be addressed in chapter 2 are identified as law holders. So the first one is the Pharisees. The second one, verses 17 to 29, and we didn't read all of this. But these are people who have, in a sense, their faith has become empty. A good religious word for it is dead orthodoxy. People who they think because the law has been revealed to us, we have a special standing in in front of the rest of people in the world. God's with us. But what that leads to is, is a laziness, both moral and spiritually. And then there are three possibilities outlined. I've been mentioning them over the last couple of weeks. First, possibility one, is the non-religious people who, through a a process, don't seem to give a whip about the law, though even in the text that George read us, Paul's going to say, 
Even the non-religious have, have part of God's law written on their heart. They're still going to, many are going to try to do good things, love one another, not kill, you know, not steal. But the sense here is that the non-religious in some ways don't give a whip about God's law. That's possibility one. Possibility two is that you would see yourself primarily as a law keeper. And possibility three is that you would see yourself as a law holder. I suppose you could combine the, the, the second two, the last two. Paul, writing to the Romans, has a, you can't see that, but that's okay. You only need to know one word with three letters. Paul, writing to the Romans, describes this all with one word. All three of these possibilities. I'll give you a big word and then the, the important one. All of this, Paul says, is unrighteousness. All is the important word. Glory, hallelujah, amen. Possibility one, the unrighteousness is obvious and the one that churches today, not just Christian faith but other faiths, still focus on possibility one as if we could just get people to straighten out their you know, morally decrepit lives, lives, then it would be okay. Possibility one, the unrighteousness is obvious. Possibility two is unrighteousness because, as the text says, you do the same things. You who say do not steal and you set up elaborate systems might not look like stealing in the eyes of the world. Jesus went at the Pharisees once about this in terms of tithing because they you know, were supposed to be giving money to, to the church, to the temple, and they would hold back a certain amount of the money. Or they're supposed to be giving money to their families, caring for aging parents or whatever. And they would hold back certain money saying, well, this is reserved for the church. But they weren't really giving it to the church either. And Jesus identified that as a kind of theft. You who say do not steal, you steal. You who say do not commit adultery, you commit adultery. So there's an unrighteousness in thinking that the law could ever condemn those other people, but I'm free because I keep it all. You'll see it over and over again in scriptures and in the gospels, particularly in scriptures, in scriptures when somebody comes and says, like the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, what's the law? He says, what, what must I do to acquire eternal, eternal life? Which is, gives it away what, who the rich young ruler is. The rich young ruler has acquired everything. And the real, the, the beautiful word in that text is acquire. What must I do? I can purchase just about anything now. What must, must I do to acquire eternal life? And Jesus says, what? You know the law? And so the guy, it's just brilliant. Jesus just sets him up. It almost seems mean on Jesus' part, except we're told that Jesus has great compassion for this man. So he says, you know the law. And the man says, that's right. And he starts quoting, you know, somebody taught him in church the, the Ten Commandments, and he starts quoting them. And, Je- and Jesus says, well, you look like you're pretty good then to me. I don't know why you're asking me. And the man starts to feel pretty satisfied and goes to walk away. And Je- Oh, one more thing, Jesus says, you got to do. you got to sell everything you have and give it away. And the man walks away. So is he a keeper of the law? Law keepers, that's an unrighteousness. Possibility three, those who think that they have a special standing with God because they hold the law. Uh, I love, love the word holiness. Holiness, the holiness of God, which is kind of an otherness word. 
And we're reminded in this text that just because you have had this revealed to you, we could think of this in Christian terms as well. Just because you know God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, you talk about prayer and reading scripture, you don't have, like, there's no special standing before anybody else in the world. And that is a beautiful, beautiful truth. Unless you think there's a special standing, and then it's a a threat. In other words, holding the law, the law itself, does not matter as a basis of salvation. Paul will say in the text, and I want to kind of shake my finger at those of you who then would say, yeah, so it doesn't matter how you live. Oh, Paul's not saying that. Paul says the works of your life, righteousness, working unto holiness, they matter greatly, but they don't matter as the basis for salvation. They matter as the evidence. Which, if you're trying to encourage a young person to consider faith, if you're trying, the last thing that you want to do then is create a Christian who doesn't believe in, Christ, in, in Jesus. Follows all the rules. You co-opt the faith in a way. So it would seem at this point to be somewhat hopeless. But for those of us who know what's coming, the freedom, when you see this dismantling occur, look, here's how many or most people in the world live according to appetite. That's the end of chapter 1. That is dismantled. You can't, you can't get to God that way. You can't get to eternal life. That's The wrath of God is revealed against that. So our human answer is religion. And then Paul says, okay, let's dismantle that. Let's dismantle that. And for those of us who know what's coming, you know what's left now? A great big horizon. Every mountain has been brought down and every valley has been raised up. And you might, by God's grace, have the eyes to see what God will do now. Because what you're going to hear now for the rest of Romans is the gospel. I can try to describe it to you in words or pictures, but it's something I think that you must know and something that by God's grace you may feel. Though I am aware that some, even in a church this size, some would struggle with saying they don't ever really feel this at all. Though they've prayed. they've. I, I don't have a remedy for that. I just say... I know that exists. But I am grateful that it is something for me that I can describe, I can, you know, give scripture verses on, I can read commentaries on, but at its heart, I see that horizon after all this dismantling has occurred, and I say, thanks be to God, because I'm about to see life. All these other things lead to death. One of the greatest metaphors in the Bible, we should be, we should be memorizing scripture, you should be, I already have. No, I'm kidding. I need two more, too. But that's why I kind of put this on a little fake piece of paper. You could remember this verse. Take this as your scripture memory verse. Write it down in your bulletins or whatever. In Philippians, Paul is talking about this same kind of idea. And he's saying, look, I, I had everything. I had power. Uh, he had status. He would have been fine financially. Uh, everything. He impressed the religious people until he decided that it wasn't or until he encountered Jesus Christ. But he says in Philippians 3.8, what is more? And you'll have to see the context by reading previously. But he says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. The dismantling has occurred. 
Paul is now seeing that horizon and he's saying, the interesting thing is, the good things and the bad things all look the same to me. They're garbage. In fact, the scripture translators make this nicer for nice English ears. Because really this is bloody, filthy, dirty rags. All the stuff that I counted on as my standing before, it's nothing that, I, that instead that I could see Jesus Christ. Another way of saying this that I've had in my mind over the past few weeks as I've been working on this series, and I say this strongly, there is no such thing as human righteousness. There is no such thing as human righteousness. Human righteousness exists by comparison only. So I've worked it out. I have to redo it because some people aren't here that would be here. It's the same every week. Um, I've worked it out. I'm better than 37 people here. How many are here? Oh, sorry. I saw somebody else. Better than 38. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) There are 37 people in the room who are less righteous than I am. That's human righteousness. That's how we work it. It's the only way to work it out. And when this starts to creep into a church community, it's deadly. And the people who don't quite fit become... It's the game that we play. And for many non-religious people, that's what they think religion is. And sometimes we've played the part for them. Every human invention, every stab at human righteousness is simply dressing up the dead and the vile and saying to God, look, look at me. God is not an angry and abusive parent, but what he is impressed by is not quite that. Thomas Hobbes, a 17th century philosopher, who many of you, if you don't know him, I guarantee you he's influenced you more than most of the people that you know, including celebrities today. Or He's had a greater impact on your life. Uh, he described people who are, quote, forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other men. I mean, we know this. I don't have to... It's just, and the interesting thing is, for those of us who get tired of religion and see this sensibility happening in religious circles, the truth is we do the same thing. Sometimes to those very people that we're indirectly condemning. But here's the big picture. Against all of this dismantling, the statement will be made that the gospel brings life. Self-centered life guided by appetite and desire does not bring life. A religious life, thanks be to God, does not bring life. The distinction between men and men, one person and another, between the saved and the damned, between righteous and unrighteous, cannot be made by human standard. It's why I struggle at some introductions. I'm such a contrarian, I know. Why on earth would I ever cheer against the Seattle Seahawks? I'm not really, in some, you know, but certainly the Toronto Maple Leafs because I know that my family in Toronto are cheering for them. And one of the contrary ways, though, I think there's, this is, there's more holiness in this one, not in the sports ones, is that when I see a person introduced... And they're introduced as a person of great integrity. I'm sitting in the congregation. I might even love that person. I might think they're really good. They're, you know, their heart's in the right place. All that. I want to yell out, 
Well, what I want to yell out is BS. And then everybody would be upset at me, and that would make it even better. And I especially would yell it if it's somebody that I knew. You know, Ken Bell. Here's Ken Bell. He's a person of integrity. And I'm back there going, right? And I'd most especially want to yell it out if I was being introduced that way, though it's never happened yet. There's no human righteousness. It's why in a church, you know, you, you, you measure who, who's, who's like worthy to read scripture. I think there's something in that. We had a, a, a man of great Christian faith this morning reading scripture for us. Nobody has to wonder, you know, is he worthy? <laughs> but there's, no, there's nothing that makes you like, well, now that person's acceptable up there. The quote is this. What is pleasing to God comes into being when all human righteousness is irretrievably gone. Not just one day, but every day. For those of you who rely on religion more than trust faith in Jesus Christ in receiving the gospel, you've got to pray this prayer. For those who are relying on human effort and security and, you know, mutual funds or something, or all the human things we make. What is pleasing to God comes into being when all human righteousness is irretrievably gone. And if we could get there as a church, oh, if we could get there as a church. We're not there yet. But it's okay. We're heading in the right direction. There's a side note to this. And it has to do with evangelism. Churches want people and more people. And we love the lie, and it is a lie, that a crowd by definition, means that something is good. So if a church is full, if it is good and big, we could take the same service and put it in a smaller church and we would say that the one in the bigger church was better. That's our human nature. We like the feeling when there's more people doing what we're doing. And sometimes, many many times, churches can be motivated positively to bring more people into the church. They want people to see the gospel. There's nothing wrong with that. But this negative motivation can be there as well. We feel better if there's more people. One of Jesus' accusations to the Pharisees was he said to them, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and then you turn them into twice the son of hell that you are. In other words, I'm not impressed that you got your followers. The truth of this is for churches like ours, like, I mean, today, and I'm not talking Sutherland particularly, though we would have to watch this. Churches can be driven by religious religion and fear and get a lot of people to sign up for the project. It can work. But there's a side note here. And what can happen is often that those outside the church can see what's truly happening. They can see that... You know, maybe their lives, they don't think about God and it's not, or at least in, in these Christian terms, and, you know, I'm not really paying attention, whatever, or I don't believe at all. And, and so, the, but then they see the religious and, and they see, but that's really no better. They're just dressing themselves up. It's just presentation. In other words, sometimes people outside the church can more easily see the truth of this dismantling than people in the church. This quote was written in the 1920s about this concept. The children of God present then nothing peculiar, nothing new, 
Nothing that exercises, I love this, a compelling power. And so after standing for a moment in amazement before, these are non-religious people looking at religious people, after standing for a moment in amazement before the comedy of an unreal communion with God, the children of the world turn away, supported and confirmed in their knowledge that after all, the world is the world. In other words, well, God doesn't really matter. Those people have religion and that might be nice, but... The children of the world are protected against turning towards the God of the religious man. Listen for the freedom that the gospel declares. Again, another word that I love from a commentator. Every claim to be a proprietor, the one who owns it, the one who holds it, every claim to be a proprietor is misunderstanding. If we act as if our religion, our law-keeping, and our law-holding makes us exceptional, we begin to act as if God needs something, and thank goodness He's got us. Or, as the commentator put it, we dare deck ourselves out as His companions, patrons, advisors, and commissioners. Here I come, so here comes God. This is, in the words of Romans unrighteousness. Hard to hear. The freedom is that nothing that we can do can be righteousness before God. Nothing we can do can be the basis of our right standing before God. can be evidence. The freedom is that the right standing is not accomplished, but now another old word for you. The right standing before God is not accomplished, but it is reckoned unto us by God. Isn't that a great word, reckoned? Reckoned unto us by God. I'll read that if you can't see it. In other words, the truth after all this dismantling is a truth of forever hopefulness. Because it's not my work, it's reckoned unto me, and that will be the gospel as it's outlined. God grants through Jesus Christ the life which is unto full life, In Jesus Christ, I know the gospel and I know salvation. So if you skip ahead to chapter 3, verse 21, and listen to the language now. It's beautiful construction of of this theological argument. The wrath of God has been revealed, we were told in chapter 1, right? And you didn't like that being revealed. Everybody was like, oh, the wrath of God. But we get, and then the dismantling occurs. And the horizon's laid out. And then chapter 3, verse 21, and we'll get there, says, but now... A righteousness from God has been revealed. Oh, thanks be to God. I'm not without hope. Someone, I'll give you a quiz. Someone could tell me who I'm quoting here. It might be somebody younger, but we'll see. Okay. When I think of this, I often think of the real story. The religious story or the story of self seems good. Think of that as the watered-down one. But it's really awful, blasted, boring. Self-appetite and religion. But you're about to hear the real story. And there is this call, like, gather round, children. Zip it. Listen. The goal of human righteousness, or the goal of human life, The goal of human life is not death, but resurrection, life. And here is the gospel. I'll read it for you. The Son of God emptied himself and came into the world in Jesus Christ, becoming a servant. 
He died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice so that we wouldn't have to be beholden to the progression of the wrath of God. And he rose from the dead as the first fruits of a whole renewed world. And one day we'll see this wholeness. Gregory of Nyssa, almost 1,700 years ago, was talking about something that's pretty contemporary. He said, people want to know themselves, you know, that I might better know myself. I could be a better parent or a better worker or whatever it might be. He says, it's not that we might better know ourselves or feel good about ourselves, that we seek this understanding, but rather in order that we might become instruments of grace. That you are a purveyor of this gospel. Instruments of divine grace. When you know the gospel, when you truly know the gospel, that it's not self-centered, it's not religious. That it is the reckoning or the rendering of God is better and more beautiful and depends on nothing at all from us, which is still so hard to fathom. What we must do is receive. We won't know it if we don't receive it. It's still true, but we won't know it. When we have seen it and we acknowledge this life in Christ, we become fully alive and we look forward. We become positive, not grabbing as much as we can for self, which is how our world works, fear and scarcity and death. Christians aren't the ones running around with the bad news. It's people who live this, work, this life according to the fact that I better save up as much as I can because something bad might happen. I better get as much as I can. Fear, scarcity and death and sometimes opulence and conspicuous living. Christians look forward when we know this gospel, not shaking our heads at that, not saying, look at those terrible people, and certainly not shaking our heads in religious fear, but rather looking forward to to what? Looking forward, the truth is, to everything. I look forward to everything. But the the real truth of that is, I only look forward to God. Is that a slight on my family? No. David Waynes, who was here last Saturday at the the non-men's, men's and women's breakfast, who was in a Liberian jail for nine months, at the end of his talk, he cried. And you know when he cried? When he talked about the smell of cedar. He he didn't believe he'd ever smell that again. But I could see that it was his faith, that he was looking forward not just to freedom and that beautiful smell, but all of it was looking forward to God. To him only. So that all creation and music and beauty and redemption and everything that ever was joins the chorus. And now we get to the song that I don't want you to sing. I'll explain it to you. It's very simple and there's very few words and we'll put them on the screen. And you won't sing and then we'll end our service. Uh, On Monday when I was first, well, working more on the sermon. I work at home on Mondays and, and this song came into my head. I think because of Lois. Lois and I were talking about it after the service. She was reminding me of it last week. And uh, it's, a, it's Graham Ward who's, who's sung here before in this right here. And he wrote this and sings this. It simply says, You are God and I am not. Oh, sweet revelation. You can cry at you know, being made to feel good when you felt bad. You can cry at knowing that there's rescue. And it's not my doing, it's just the grace of God, but that's my moment of greatest tears was Monday by myself at home. You are God and I am not. I was just thinking of it and I was going to call Allison, can you do this song? But then the spirit overwhelmed me and I was in tears. You are God and I am not, oh sweet revelation. I worship you, I revere you, I worship you, oh holy God. So what is left for you is to receive 
the good news of Jesus Christ, that in turning to him you can know this fullness of life. Don't sing this song. Pray it.